This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible. Because we're already doing it. All while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Alan Jones, Australia's leading voice. Well, good evening and thank you for being with us on ADH. It's our birthday today. It's one year to the day since we began and what progress we've made. Yes, I'm Alan Jones. I'm saying here what others might not want to hear. As I mentioned to you, I was in Queensland last week. My apologies for being absent, but I was doing some Anzac Day stuff and talking to farmers. More about that today and tomorrow. But overwhelmingly, I was inundated by people asking me about this wretched voice. Now, may I say at the outset, it is no use being fatigued and switching off. I know there's a heap of repetition about this issue, but we're going to have to be involved. 10 years ago, it would have been impossible to believe that we'd be talking about such stuff. Yet we're now being belted over the head by two arguments. One, oh, the voice is a simple, necessary, long overdue adjustment of the constitution. Just bringing the past into line with the present. That is rubbish. And the second point, well, if you dare to argue against and proclaim you're voting no, oh, Watch the language and vilification and abuse pour forth. More of that later. Let me be blunt. It is the no case which is not racist. It's the yes case that's wanting to introduce a race-based change to the Constitution. And don't be sucked in by some so-called legal advice. For example, the Solicitor General describes the proposed voice as an enhancement to our democracy. That's not a legal comment. It's a political comment. The New South Wales Bar Association has issued public support for the Indigenous Voice model, prompting the senior counsel, Clive Stern, to lash out at the Bar Council for virtually claiming it has a mandate from its members to support the voice. It has none. As Clive Stern SC asks, did the Bar Council obtain its own independent legal advice as to the constitutional implications in relation to possible challenges by the voice to the High Court. But look, I'm saying to you, forget constitutional challenges and all that stuff. Forget all this high-minded legal talk. This so-called voice will be unelected. There'll be 24 Indigenous people chosen. No one knows by whom. No one knows whether they'll be paid. No one knows how much they'll be paid. 24 of them, a third arm of government. In this way, one group of Australians, fewer than 4% have a second voice. 
We already have 11 voices in the federal parliament, indigenous voices, and the number of registered corporations by regions in Australia, Aboriginal corporations, 3,352. As my old man would say, how many bloody voices do you want? The Prime Minister has an Indigenous Advisory Council. There are more than 30 land councils. There's a so-called Council of Peaks representing 70 Aboriginal organisations, but 3,352 registered Aboriginal corporations. You help fund them. The Aboriginal population is officially 3.8% of the Australian population. 11 Aboriginal MPs in Parliament represent 4.8% of the Parliament. So put bluntly, again, the Indigenous population is overrepresented. Yet now they want another voice. I prefer, prefer to advise you of the views of one of Australia's leading jurists, Terence Cole, a former judge on the New South Wales Court of Appeal, who presided over two royal commissions. He's made a submission to the Joint Parliamentary Committee on The Voice, the same commission, I might add, which sought to deny a voice to Tony Abbott. I should point out that when Tony Abbott made his submission to that parliamentary committee, and I'll look at this later, he requested that he appear in person to speak to the committee about his submission. The Labor majority on the committee refused to allow him in, prompting Tony Abbott to ask, what's the government afraid of? Quote, I quote Tony Abbott, is it worried that someone who knows how government works would explain how the voice's constitutional right to make representations to everyone about everything could paralyse government, unquote. He asked Tony Abbott, quote, is it concerned that government members of the committee might be challenged about how the government intends to have members of the voice chosen by election or selection or by heredity? By the way, note the word heredity. It's on your screen there, H-E-R-E-D-I-T-Y. That's not hereditary. Heredity is something bestowed, a bestowed inheritance, as opposed to hereditary, which one person passes on to their children. Tony Abbott further added, and I quote, is the government concerned that the more people know about the voice, the more anxious that voters might be to sign a blank check for radical change, unquote. Former Prime Minister Abbott said, it is a scandal that people with relevant expertise aren't given every chance to address the inquiry. Never before have we been frog-marched into changing the constitution like this, unquote. Well, yesterday morning, the committee apparently held a private meeting and backpedaled. Tony Abbott gave evidence. He was outstanding. But back to Terence Cole, who rightly said in his submission, the former judge and the former head of two royal commissions, that the voice, as Lydia Thorpe has argued, is one part of the broader program of the Uluru Statement from the heart, which calls for a treaty. This is Judge Terence Cole and truth telling, as well as a voice to the parliament. All of which, as he says, the Albanese government has accepted in its entirety. Wrote the former Judge Terence Cole, quote, the voice is critical to the objectives made clear in the Uluru Statement that Aboriginals wish to establish sovereignty over Australian territory, ownership of Australian land and surrounding waters, monetary and other compensation, and truth-telling." Unquote. As the former Royal Commission judge, Terence Cole, then argued, quote, a Makarata, which is truth-telling, a Makarata Commission would look backwards 
trawling over events, legislation, policies and administrative actions over the past 225 years to discover areas of discontent in the minds of present living Aboriginals and to award compensation, unquote. The former judge, Terence Cole, hit the nail on the head when he said that, quote, Australians need to understand that the voice will be used to support the demands of recognition of coexisting sovereignty. Our New Zealand viewers know what this is about. They've got it over there. Coexisting sovereignty, thanks to Ardern. That's what he said. The demands for recognition, Terence Cole, of coexisting sovereignty, a Makarata commission designed to these are the words of Terence Cole, produce a treaty and monetary compensation and a rewriting of Australian history, unquote. For goodness sake, Australia, can we wake up? The no case needs to get its act together. Stop the fragmentation. It has, I would venture to say, the perfect answer available to it. Appoint Tony Abbott to lead the no campaign. Just before I go any further, by the way, were you aware that on Friday, April 21, which is 11 days ago at 2 a.m., while everyone was asleep in Sydney, up to 40 metres below ground level, a train travelled under Sydney Harbour for the first time. A single deck metro train from Talawong, Talawong's a suburb of Blacktown in Sydney's northwest, went through Chatswood, then North Sydney, and then under the harbour continuing on to Barangaroo. This is all part of the $20 billion Metro City and Southwest line. Now, it was being tested by transport officials and engineers for four hours, and apparently everything went, went smoothly. To complete the history, the journey under the harbour, this is amazing, isn't it, happened almost 100 years after the first locomotive train passed above the harbour on the Sydney Harbour Bridge. How about that? Now, of equal significance, and I should have told you this earlier, but I hope you didn't miss 5 p.m. tonight on ADH, where we were joined by one of the finest broadcasters in the world, and that's not an overstatement, Mark Stein. Now, you'll be able to see him on ADH every Tuesday to Friday at 5 p.m., or you can watch anytime you like, as you know, on the ADH TV app or website. We here are proud to have launched the Mark Stein Show on ADH TV, another additional talent to our lineup. I've spoken to Mark on many occasions in the past, a wonderful mind, an extraordinary grasp of relevant issues, especially international, all of which you'll find expressed in language you can understand and with which you can identify. Mark Stein is one of us. I remember him telling me at the time of the leadership of Barack Obama, now then as now, there were appalling terrorist attacks in Paris. Now, Barack Obama in 2015 described the attacks in Paris as, and I quote, an attack not just on Paris, it's an attack, he said, not just on the people of France, but this is an attack on all of humanity and the universal values we share, unquote. Now, you see, it all sounds terrific, doesn't it? But it takes a Mark Stein to rightly argue that President Obama spent most of his years as president trying to avoid the world as it is. Mark Stein said that while Barack Obama was telling the world that his administration had, quote, contained ISIS, the same ISIS was boasting it had slaughtered 150 people in the heart of Paris. Indeed, they succeeded in getting two suicide bombers and a third bomb to within a few yards of the French president. It took Mark Stein to identify the truth 
It was not an attack on humanity, but an attack on the West, on the civilization that built the modern world. As Mark Stein said, Obama talked about, quote, the universal values we share, unquote. Witness Australia. At the time, Mark Stein told me correctly, they're only universal values when great powers are willing to enforce them around the world, hopefully even enforce them here. Could we start with freedom? Smashed during coronavirus. Could we start with democracy? Where our federal leaders and many on the other side believe in this so-called democratic world that a minority should have more say than everybody else and call it a voice. As Mark Steiner said, these so-called universal values now seem alien to large parts of the world map today. At the time, Mark Stein talked about the decadence of Western leadership. You've heard me talking about the crisis in Western leadership. Mark Stein has warned that the decadence of Western leadership will cost us, our world, and everything we love. Mark Stein's book, America Alone, The End of the World as We Know It, is a New York Times bestseller. Now, sometimes the words are uttered, aren't they, that the barbarians are at the gate. Mark Stein disagrees. He says, the barbarians are already inside. There are no gates. It's compulsive listening. Mark Stein joins us on ADH TV, Tuesday to Friday at 5 p.m. Or you can watch him anytime on demand on the ADH TV app. Welcome aboard, Mark Stein. As I said earlier, we mustn't get voice fatigue. I want to look at this in order to clarify the thinking of many. It is really important for Australia and for you. A relatively new federal Liberal Party face is the man who replaced the very fine Liberal Kevin Andrews in the seat of Menzies, Keith Woolahan. His story is quite extraordinary. He's 45 years of age. He's got a wife and two children. He was born in Dublin. He migrated to Australia with his family in 1988. He became an Australian citizen in 1993. He was school captain of Ringwood Secondary College and while there worked at McDonald's for three years to make a few bob. He graduated in arts and commerce from the University of Melbourne. He then completed an honours degree in law at Monash University, his honours thesis being defence, justice and the war on territory, an issue about which I'll talk to him at a later point. He was awarded the Sir Charles Lowe Prize for the best advocate in his thesis. He then completed a master's degree in international relations at Cambridge University. My point is, there are a lot of Keith Woolahans out there, immensely credentialed. The Liberal Party fails because more often than not, it doesn't allow the cream to come to the top. Keith Woolahan, the new member for the seat of Menzies, then worked with the national commercial law firm, Mallison Stephen Jakes, before becoming a barrister in 2010, where he specialised in commercial and consumer law. He also served in the Australian Army. He completed a part-time officer training course at Duntroon, reaching the rank of captain. He qualified as a commando, serving several periods of full-time service with Special Operations Command, including one tour of Timor-Leste and three combat tours of Afghanistan. In the 2011 Australia Day Honours, the new member for the seat of Menzies was decorated with a commendation for distinguished service for performance of duty in action as a platoon commander. Now, do you reckon that doesn't demonstrate that there are people of quality in the Liberal Party? Let them get to the top 
instead of blocking people because of factional preferences. If I was Peter Dutton, I've said this before, I'd have this bloke on the front bench straight away. Well, with a mind like that, Keith Wallahan has sensibly been given the task to lead the coalition's cross-examination on the voice referendum joint parliamentary committee, which met yesterday. I might add, he also has some very interesting observations about this critical issue of home ownership, arguing that providing viable solutions to that issue alone could lead to the reinvigoration of the Liberal Party and its relevance to the electorate. But let's get back to The Voice, and Keith Wallahan joins me. Keith, thank you for your time. Uh, I note that this so-called Joint Parliamentary Committee has seven Labor MPs, four Coalition MPs, the Greens' First Nations spokeswoman, Dorinda Cox, and the National Party turned independent Andrew G. He quit the Nationals over their opposition to The Voice. Keith, how did it go yesterday? Oh, thank you for having me, Alan. Well, yesterday was the final day. We only actually had five public hearing days. And as you're aware, that we didn't have a constitutional convention for this process. So this was supposed to make up for that. I wish we'd had more time, but we were able to cross-examine some significant legal experts, particularly on day one and yesterday. And what we learned, Alan, was that this has risk. Now, uh, many will say, well, don't worry about the risk because the Solicitor General says it's all fine. Uh, but, but he's one person. He won't be sitting on the future High Court. Well, he, he may have aspirations to do that. But, but many judges on the High Court uh, passionately agree mm. uh, on putting their view forward. But in the end, they may be in the minority. And, and that's what happens in a future High Court. We also heard from people like former Justice, High Court Justice Ian Callanan, and he said the risk is higher. Mm. So the risk exists. But there's different views about whether it's yes. low or probable. Yeah, I spoke to Ian Callanan uh, off air last week. We were a function together. But I listened to some of this, especially the questioning of Tony Abbott by Sharon Clayton. Now, I have to say, I fancy I sort of know a bit about federal politics. I've never heard of Sharon Clayton. She's been the Labor member for Newcastle. Sharon, where have you been for 10 years? See, Keith, I'm at a loss to understand what there is to examine. Because when you're talking about a race-based change to the Constitution, it surely makes those arguing in favour of a yes vote guilty of dividing us on the basis of race. Who on earth could support that? Well, and to be fair to Sharon, I, she is the, the Deputy Speaker, and I found her to be a very competent Deputy Speaker. I enjoy appearing <laughs> before her. Um, very good. Look, there's three ways. My apologies there's, to you, Sharon. Three reasons. <laughs> That's all right. There's three reasons why you might have suspicions about the proposal. Uh, one is the principle of equality of citizenship. And you're right, there's, there's very little that can be done to the words that will address that. You either think that's a principle that will guide your vote or you don't. There are those that think, well, this will not shift the dial on Indigenous disadvantage. It will be another layer of bureaucracy. And again, the wording doesn't really matter there. But there's a third reason, and that's constitutional risk. And not every Australian is motivated by that, but, but a lot are. And, and right now there is serious risk, particularly in the voice to the executive as it's worded in part two. But should we be altering the constitution on the basis of race? Well, well that's, that's what Tony Abbott came to speak about when he spoke yesterday. But and I, want was, uh, about, I want you blokes talking about it. I want you blokes talking about it. Why wouldn't you just simply say, look, you can forget the detail. We can't divide our guiding document on the basis of race. I mean, it just doesn't make sense. That was called apartheid once, wasn't it, Keith? 
Well, look, that, that, that argument is, is a very simple and seductive one, and it will be put, and it has been put by Peter Dutton and many others, but my role as the deputy chair of this committee is to focus on constitutional risk. So this committee didn't really look at that particular argument uh, because it stands on its own or it doesn't, and, and I think it's quite a simple one that doesn't need a committee to look at See, it. Okay. So uh, we focused on constitutional risk. Right, okay. Now, from the introduction I gave to you, the viewers would know this bloke's no dumbbell. Very smart, highly credentialed. I've got to say, though, Keith, I'm very concerned that the argument seems to be, and I'll say this slowly, you're talking about constitutional risk, the wording of the constitutional amendment and whether it will trigger a legal minefield. In other words, we're, even the Conservatives, Liberals, we're worried about the wording. Now, are the people in your party who are arguing the no case aware, in my opinion, of the rod that they may be making for their own back by talking about the wording of the amendment as if this were the issue. Now, we've already talked about the race-based change issue, okay, and the third arm of government, a nation divided on the basis of race. But Keith, Albanese is no political dunce. Whatever else might be said about him, he's good at politics. No good at policy, Albo, but he's good at the politics. If Albanese sees the tide going out, as it will, as the public make up, wake up to what is a mess in all of this, which they wouldn't approve. Why wouldn't Albanese say to the Liberals, oh, you're worried about the wording, are you? Well, now look, I'll change the wording. Will you then support the voice? And he's then got Dutton and co cornered because they've been arguing about the wording. What do you say to that, Keith? No, I, I understand that argument and, and I've given that a lot of thought and that, that's that's certainly a, a political argument that can be put. But Peter has been very clear that, that one of the reasons he and most of the members of the party room don't support it is because of the principle. So I don't think that that tactic works. But there are some that are motivated by that. And, and, and I think there are some people in the public who are motivated by that. And you can't rule that out. But I don't think, Alan, that they will shift. All of the indications from this committee is that they're defending every word, every syllable, and do not think that they have to, that they think that they have this in the bag and they don't need to budge. Mm. Well, I just want to repeat, because I think I worked for a Prime Minister and we had a golden rule. When you're sick of saying it, they're only starting to hear it. And I'm saying to our viewers here, I, and I'm urging you, cannot support a change to our national, national document based on race. Uh, who was it that decided Tony Abbott couldn't appear? And how did he subsequently make it before the Joint Parliamentary Committee? Well, here's the problem that I have. A lot of those decisions are made in uh, private hearings. And then for me to come and talk about it, I'd be referred to the Privileges Committee. So uh, those things are made in private, but I, I don't think it would be any surprise that I think uh, as a former prime minister who makes a submission should be heard. And it was a good thing that he was heard yesterday. Yeah, and isn't he right, Abbott, when he argued that the government must be worried that, quote, someone who knows how government works, like Abbott, would explain how the voice's constitutional right to make representations to everyone about everything could paralyse government. Uh, Keith, that to me is unarguable. Well, it is. And, and also Tony Abbott comes at this from a person who has a deep conviction and passion for improving the conditions of Indigenous Correct. Australians. So uh, no one can question his motives in this. And, and he is a patriot when it comes to the workings of government, but also improving the lives of Indigenous Australians. And I think Tony's contributions were, were excellent yesterday. Yes, because every arm of government, every decision affects us all. 
all of us, and Indigenous Australians are part of Australia, aged care, pensions, interest rates, migration, numbers, housing, tariffs, whatever it is, export policy, to say nothing of the energy rubbish that's being peddled. Surely it's not alarmist to argue that The Voice, 24 unelected but selected activist Indigenous Australians would be barking for a say on interest rates, perhaps the budget. That's not alarmist talk, is it, Keith? Well, we don't know how the voice will ultimately be composed. That's part of the questions that were put by Peter Dunn, and they haven't been answered. So this referendum is going to go ahead without knowing critical details like that, which Australians should know before they, they get asked to make this important decision. Uh, but, but, of course, the voice can make representations on any matter it likes. Yeah. Now, the argument has been put, well, then the executive doesn't have to listen. But, but we know from the migration area of law that it's not about whether you have to listen or not. It's but Albo said it would be a brave government. Didn't Albo say it would be a brave government who ignored the voice? <laughs> I mean, Abbott's right well, about... That's right. I mean, Tony Abbott's right. It's a paralysed government. Just on Abbott, uh, Tony Abbott, uh, yesterday he said, and I quote in part, it's a scandal that people with relevant expertise aren't given every chance to address the inquiry. Then this point, never before have we been frog-marched into changing the constitution like this. It's pretty true, isn't it? Why wouldn't we put Abbott in charge of the no case? Well, it's not for me to say who's in charge of the no case. There, there are, are several key advocates for that. And, and I think Tony Abbott will certainly be one. He's, he's a very forceful advocate and his experience goes right back to the last significant referendum we had in 1999. And, and that's why I led with questions about that period where we had a constitutional convention in 1998 and we should have had one here and it's a shame that we didn't. Good on you. You speak with great clarity. Just before you go, you said after the loss of the uh, Aston by-election that in that electorate of Aston, 41% of the homes had a mortgage way above the national average of 35%. You're a clear thinker. How do you boost home ownership? Before you answer that question, I mean, just take a smart young person, man or a woman, out of university, say 28, parents weren't rich. So the students get through university on a help or a hex. Then there's a hex debt, perhaps given 100,000 bucks, depending on the course. And if he or she has a job in Melbourne or Brisbane or metropolitan Australia, they'll have to pay rent. They've got to pay off the hex debt. Then you need a deposit. You can't buy much for 500,000, but even on that, you'd need a deposit of $100,000, 20%. That's what the banks want. So Keith, how does such a bloke, a young lady, ever afford a home? This goes to the heart of who we are, Alan. Uh, my parents picked Australia as a place to have our future because they felt like more than any other country on earth, uh, that this was a country not divided by class. This was a country where no matter what family you were born into, if you worked hard enough, if you were smart enough, you could make it. I'm really worried with falling home ownership rates and rising house prices that we're going to ask in future generations whether you are a family born into land or not. That's not the sort of Australia we migrated to. It's not the sort of Australia we want to have. And key to that is making sure that every Australian, if they work hard enough, they have a chance to own a little bit of Australia for themselves 
Robert Menzies got that, and, and he cared about it right at the heart of World War II. Mm. So, so we should turn our minds to this as one of the number one national priorities, I and I certainly will. I know, but, but, but Keith, the on the points that I've made, on the maths that I've offered to you, it is hopeless. So when is mm. the Liberal Party going to have a house? I think, God, surely they know a housing policy by now. We're not going to bring it out two weeks before the election, are we? I agree with you. This is critical to all Australians, to the parents who worry about their young ones, to the young ones who now have left home. When can we expect a policy that will address these issues and mobilise those people who are looking for a political home to join the Liberal Party home? I don't have the answer to that question, but but I hope it's soon, Alan. I think you're right. You can't announce that like we did in the last election in the final weeks of the campaign. That was a good policy, I thought, but it was too little too late. I think we need to announce this quite early, and I hope that my party does that in the coming months or, or at least soon after. But um, I'm sure it's something that, that will happen way before the election, and uh, and it should be a significant policy. That There's two main levers you can pull. There's the state lever of supply, and there are certain incentives the federal government can give, particularly through the grants power. But there's also questions about tax, about whether the mix of renters and owners can be looked at. And again, we should look at all of the options and, and be open-minded about Absolutely. that. Absolutely, and get a policy out early. You're a most impressive young man. I congratulate you. We need people like you in the federal parliament. Thank you for talking to us, and I hope we can talk again. Thank you, Alan, and thank you to your listeners. Thank there he is. Most impressive, that young fellow, isn't he? Keith Woolahan. He's the federal member, Liberal member for the Victorian seat of Menzies. Let's get to the guts of things because much has been made, too much in my opinion, of the Prime Minister Albanese being at a wedding at the weekend. Now, the electorate are not stupid. They'll work out for themselves whether his attendance was in keeping with his status as Prime Minister. That is not what has angered Australians. They see a Prime Minister having a good time when out there in Struggle Street, the wedding day for Albo was a dark day for households and business. And so far on policy, the Albanese government barely scores. Bowen, of course, will be the architect of Albanese's downfall. I've told you that before. He was the architect of the downfall of Bill Shorten. Member Bowen's punitive and divisive tax policy and his arrogant challenge to the electorate, if you don't like it, then don't vote for us. Well, we didn't. Now the Liddell Power Station in New South Wales is closed. Other closures are pending. The Simon and Garfunkel song has never had more residents. Hello darkness, my old friend. The Albanese government via Bowen has made energy reliability weather dependent. It won't work. And while this is happening, the same energy ideologues are wanting everyone driving electric cars. Where's the electricity come from? The last Chalmers budget papers told us that electricity bills will rise by 50% over the next 18 months, if you're lucky, some say as high as 80%, and gas bills by 40%. So far, no answers from the Albanese government, who promised the exact opposite in the lead up to winning 32% of the votes from the electorate, and with that, of course, government. And how extraordinary that we'll continue to mine massive quantities of ore and ship them off to China so that they can manufacture cheaply the wherewithal to strengthen China's assault on any neighbour when it so chooses. Are we dumb or what? Why do we export our energy reserves so that other countries can have cheap electricity and cheap manufacturing and deny both of these to ourselves? I told you that Bowen, unchecked by Albanese, would be the author of the National Economic Suicide Note, and so it's happening. I repeat, the coal plant that for more than 50 years powered Australian households and sustained generations of families, the Liddell Power Station, has closed. 
You've got wealthy people like Cannon Brooks, who's AGL's largest shareholder, talking about greener electricity. Brooks wouldn't have a clue. But the Liddell closure will be followed by Bayswater in New South Wales and Loy Yang in Victoria. So while Albo's enjoying himself, households are struggling with increased energy costs, high inflation and high interest rates, and they've gone up again today. Even the unions understand what Bowen and Co don't. Michael Wright, the Electrical Trades Union National Secretary, has said Liddell was the 12th coal-fired power plant to close over the past decade, with no plans to look after affected workers, regions and communities. A rearing is to follow in 2025, which is virtually tomorrow. The former Hunter MP Joel Fitzgibbon, who's forgotten more than Bowen knows, has said, and I quote, closing power stations like a rearing, which are still in very good shape, is a bridge too far. We are not ready. A rearing accounts for 25% of New South Wales electricity needs. But that's not all. Everywhere you turn, a giant mess emerges under Prime Minister Albanese's watch. All this rubbish talk about The Voice. But the front page of yesterday's national paper highlighted what Jacinta Price has said and Peter Dutton. We don't need a voice. We need someone to listen to what they're saying in the Northern Territory. More stories of the horrifying extent of the crisis engulfing Indigenous children in Central Australia. Children, we're told, sometimes return to school in handcuffs or wearing ankle bracelets. One principal said teaching staff in the Northern Territory routinely have to contact magistrates to have bail conditions varied for children as young as 12 so that they can go to school. In one instance, a teenage girl was raped. Her young brother who witnessed the crime came to school with serious signs of self-harm after attempting to take his own life. Peter Dutton and Jacinta Price have spoken endlessly about this. All Albanese talks about is the voice. This school principal, Gavin Morris, has a PhD in Aboriginal trauma. He lectures at Charles Darwin University. He talked about his phone, quote, buzzing off its head as teachers reported they were frantically pursuing students in their cars, begging the students to stop before someone was seriously injured or killed. While Albanese and his left-wing cohorts in politics and the media talk about the voice. The Northern Territory doesn't even have a police commissioner. Jacinda Price warns that the Northern Territory government had, quote, lost complete control of law and order, unquote. The Prime Minister may be interested, but he's provided no answers. But it's not just the Northern Territory. While the PM socialises, primary and secondary schools are being forced to conduct classes while down almost 30 teachers in each school. In each school. The New South Wales Education Department alone provides the figures. Primary school teacher numbers indicate 1,068 vacancies in primary schools. Secondary schools, 1,104 vacancies. Who's teaching our kids? No one. It's a classroom crisis, a national crisis. Look, I'm sorry, but in circumstances such as these, the Prime Minister doesn't take days off. I work for one, I know. It doesn't seem to worry the government, who are saying that migration will surge by around 715,000 people over the next two years. What? We don't have the schools for the population that's here. We don't have the houses for the people here, the medical facilities, let alone rental accommodation to manage any of this. And the Albanese government has no answers. In New South Wales, the new Labor government has released figures showing an average of 55 tenants have been ordered by courts, 55 out of their rental property every week. 
55 every week since the start of the year. 55 a week, 80% of the cases for non-payment of rent. But the Albanese government has raised the official permanent migration cap to 195,000 a year. Where are these people going to live? 1,500 building firms have gone broke since the middle of last year. The National Housing Corporation says we'll need at least 180,000 new homes a year. We don't have them. And amongst all of that, there's talk that you'll solve the housing problem by beefing up renters' rights and attacking negative gearing. Oh, God, there's one conclusion from all this. If you dissuade investment into the housing market, and if serious restrictions are applied, now I don't mean landlords should be able to increase rents as it suits them, but if you create disincentives in the housing and the rental market, the housing ownership and the rental crisis will worsen because supply will crash. And if there are going to be 750,000 arrivals in the next two years, do any of the dopes in government ask a simple question? Where are these people going to sleep? With new home sales at their lowest level since 1996, People can't afford them. Is it any wonder that with Lifeline facing huge volunteer shortages, thousands of calls and texts to Lifeline are going unanswered each week. Mental health experts are rightly questioning whether Lifeline is fit to handle critical suicide calls and whether a dedicated 24-hour national telephone suicide service is required. One volunteer who's been with Lifeline for the past six years said, the whole time I'm here, there are callers waiting to speak to somebody at Lifeline. Well, of course there are. There's a cost of living crisis. People can't pay the bills. It's got worse today with interest rates going up and the Albanese government provides no answers to the issues I've raised here. And there are many more of them. We just throw money around to meet Bowen's green energy targets. Small and medium-sized businesses who invest in green energy will be eligible for up to $20,000 in tax relief. The madness is breathtaking. Convert your heating and cooling systems from gas to electricity. How's the electricity going to be generated? But no, buy a new fridge, says the Albanese government, and the government will fork out money if you shift from gas to electricity. I said at the outset, Albo can party wherever he likes, but there are real policy challenges on all these issues I've mentioned, and there are more, and I won't be letting up but you're not gonna solve these problems with 47 reviews, 38 consultation papers, accords and strategies, two summits, a robo-debt royal commission and 51 ministerial round tables. I have said, I repeat, the honeymoon is over, divorce proceedings are about to begin. Well, look, let me be blunt again and please bear with me. This is really important. As you know, this program says things that others don't want to hear. For as long as Kathleen Folbig has been in jail, I haven't used legal language, I've just called it a disgrace. I have hopefully supported my conclusions with evidence from outstanding international scientific experts. People know the story. There were four deaths, Caleb dead at 19 days in 1988, Patrick dead at eight months in 1991, Sarah dead at 10 months in 1993, and Laura dead at 19 months, all found, four of them found by their mother. Two had been declared to have died of SIDS. Patrick had been found at autopsy to have died of asphyxia related to diagnosed epilepsy. But there were four deaths, not a mark on any of the children to demonstrate that they'd been abused by their mother. No scientific evidence that any of Kathleen's babies were murdered. 
But a view had been propagated by so-called scholars that one sudden infant death was a tragedy, two was suspicious, three was murder, and four, well, they swooped. Kathleen Folbig has been in jail for 20 years. I should declare that I write to Kathleen and I try to encourage her to keep up her strength and have for years and years, keep up the fight, and I visited her in jail. Way back in 2018, I read and repeated the evidence of Professor Stephen Cordner from the Victorian Institute of Forensic Medicine, who questioned the medical testimony that contributed to Kathleen's conviction. Professor Cordner is one of Australia's top forensic pathologists. He argued there was no positive forensic pathology support for the contention that any or all of the children had been killed. Associate Professor Matthew Ord said, I think this is an eminently fatal case of myocarditis. Now, myocarditis is an inflammation of the heart muscle known to cause sudden death in some children. Associate Professor Matthew Ord said, on the basis of the medical evidence alone, I think this case certainly needs to be re-examined carefully. Well, way back in 2013, 10 years ago, I interviewed the Australian researcher at Canada's University of British Columbia, Emma Cunliffe, who had investigated the cases of a lot of women who'd been sent to jail because of the deaths of their children. Kathleen, she argued, was the only one still in jail. She referred me to Dr. Alan Kaler, a forensic pathologist who investigated the death of Laura, the fourth child, at 18 months. He knew that a child her age would put up a fight in the case, say, of smothering, and probably, not necessarily, leave signs of a struggle, particularly teeth marks on the inside of her lips. But he said her lips and face were clear. There was nothing in the brain. He took out the heart and lungs and he found nothing. This man is a forensic pathologist. Laura was the last child to die. I've always argued the innocence of Kathleen Folbig. In 2021, almost two years ago, 76 eminent researchers, including two Nobel laureates and several Australians of the year, including the Queensland scientist, Professor Ian Fraser, said that new medical evidence about a mutant gene carried by two of the Folbig children creates, quote, a strong presumption that they died from natural causes, unquote. That's 76 eminent researchers. But another 14 international experts at the time signed a petition making all up 90 top scientists, medical practitioners and science advocates calling on the New South Wales Governor Margaret Beasley to pardon the then 53-year-old Kathleen Folbig and immediately release her from jail, calling for an end to the, quote, the miscarriage of justice. 90 top scientists. Other names on the petition included the president of the Australian Academy of Science, Professor John Shine, the Nobel laureate and former Australian of the Year, Professor Peter Doherty, and the Tasmanian-born emeritus Professor Elizabeth Blackburn, a 2009 Nobel Prize winner. The petition in 2021 quoted, the executive prerogative of mercy is designed to deal with the failures of the justice system such as this one. Ms. Folbig's case also establishes a dangerous precedent, this is what the petition said, as it means the cogent medical and scientific evidence can simply be ignored in preference to subjective interpretations of circumstantial evidence, unquote. Professor John Shine of the Australian Academy of Sciences said, quote, given the scientific and medical evidence that now exists in this case, signing this petition was the right thing to do. Australia's former chief scientist, Professor Ian Chubb said, quote, expert advice 
should always be heard and listened to. It will always trump presumption, unquote. The distinguished child and public health researcher and 2003 Australian of the Year, Professor Fiona Stanley said, quote, it is deeply concerning that medical and scientific evidence has been ignored in preference to circumstantial evidence. We now have an alternative explanation, she said, for the death of the children, unquote. I've said all along, no forensic evidence existed to demonstrate that Kathleen had smothered any of her children, let alone all four. This was a case where emotion was in the vanguard, science and the law were a long way behind. Indeed, the trial prosecutor of Kathleen Folbig, Mark Tedeschi QC, closed his address to the jury in this way, disturbing then as it should be now, in relation to the probable death from natural causes. Tedeschi said to the jury, quote, I can't disprove any of that, that is, death from natural causes. But he said, one day some piglets might be born, come out of the sow with wings on their back, and the next morning Farmer Joe might look out a kitchen window and see these piglets flying out of his farm. This was the Crown Prosecutor trying to jail Kathleen Folbig. Professor David Balding, the Professor of Statistical Genetics at Melbourne University, in something of an understatement, said the pig analogy was, quote, incredibly unprofessional and pretty disgraceful. I could be here all day documenting the scientific conclusions from world-renowned distinguished scientists, including some of the world's leading authorities on the genetic causes of unexpected death. Many concluded that a hitherto undiscovered inherited mutation known as CARM2G114R played a part in the deaths of Sarah and Laura. But one of these distinguished cardiologists and world authorities, Professor Peter Schwartz, urged that the last inquiry, called in August 2018 by the New South Wales Attorney General Mark Speakman into Kathleen's convictions, be reopened the request to Speakman was refused. Speakman's now the leader of the opposition in New South Wales. I believe his treatment of the full big matter disqualifies him from any claim to leadership. In 2021, what was described then as unique in the annals of Australian criminal history, a petition endorsed by 90 world acclaimed scientists called for the pardon and immediate release of Kathleen. How you compensate an innocent and grieving mother for being locked up for 20 years is beyond my comprehension. The reason I visited and wrote to Kathleen was because I read the scientific material. The jury had another story pitched to them. All this revisits the long acclaimed aphorism that in a court of law, you'll always get decisions, you won't always get justice. Well, yet another inquiry now, headed by the retired New South Wales Chief Justice, Tom Bathurst, a King's Counsel, has concluded. Mr. Justice Bathurst will now sift through the volumes of evidence that experts have given in the fields of science, psychology and psychiatry. Mr. Bathurst's job will be to decide if there is reasonable doubt about Kathleen's convictions and then to send a report on his decision to the governor. He can recommend a pardon. He can also send the matter back to the Court of Appeal to consider quashing the convictions. But Mr. Justice Bathurst told the inquiry that there's now a significant body of evidence available to suggest Kathleen's children died of natural causes. To be fair, Mr. Justice Bathurst also said the evidence before him didn't exist at Kathleen's trial. Mr. Justice Bathurst has listened to complex expert accounts 
about a recently discovered rare gene mutation which causes heart problems and sudden death in children. Inquiry has been told that Kathleen shared this gene mutation with her daughters Laura and Sarah, but not her sons. Kathleen's barrister Gregory Woods rightly likened her case to Lindy Chamberlain's wrongful conviction for the murder of her daughter Azaria. Lindy was eventually acquitted years after new evidence was found. Kathleen's been lucky to have a longtime friend, a gift from God is this woman, Tracy Chapman. She's been to the inquiry every day and she joins me. Tracy, I just thought I'd put this all by way of background. We've both been on this case for a long time. I continue to write to Kathleen to try and give her hope. I visit her in jail. She's been watching silently alone in a secure room in the New South Wales Maximum Security Clarence Correctional Centre. How do you, Tracy, because you've been at this for over 20 years, how do you feel? How does she feel? Uh, a bit tired at the moment, to be honest. It's it's um, you, it's quite surreal to be sitting in the room last week, listening to everything unfold as it did, and for Kath to be sitting in the room, um, often pacing actually in her room, uh, listening to it as well. It's 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 full on. It's it's exhausting, and you just can't get your head around the fact that they've said there's reasonable doubt on all counts that were put to the inquiry, and yet we're still got to wait yes. to have, yes. um, you know, do you have any idea? It's, do you have any idea when? Do you have any idea when Tom Bathurst will deliver his report to the governor? No, sir. You know, at the end of the day, it could take. I think you know, last time Blanche took sort of six weeks, or actually, I think it was a bit longer than that. But you know, I estimate probably about that time, um, and that's why we've actually gone back to um, daily and you know, Chris Menz to actually beg for a pardon in the meantime, because I don't think it's fair, Kath, sitting in prison, waiting for the decision to then refer back to the Court of Criminal Appeal um, for it to be heard Absolutely. to then try and get Absolutely. the convictions overturned. It's just not fair. No, not fair. It is encouraging, is it not, that the New South Wales DPP, a lady, told the inquiry that there was reasonable doubt as to Kathleen's guilt following new genetic and neurological evidence, proving the children died from natural causes. And I note the former Chief Justice Tom Bathurst, who's heading the inquiry, said he too had, quote, seen significant evidence that suggests reasonable possibilities of Kathleen's innocence. Now, Sophie Callan SC has acted as counsel assisting the former Chief Justice Tom Bathurst. I must say, her handling of the matter is different from the 2019 inquiry headed by the former Chief Judge of the District Court, Reginald Blanche. I mean, they put they put Kathleen through hell then, didn't they? Oh, absolutely. I'm, I'm still... In, I think the, the last week when Kath was actually being um, cross-examined and it was basically an adversarial cross-examination, um, with Max Mel and Cunning was just the most shocking week I've ever spent in court at any time. Yes. I, I was just absolutely yes. got sacked. It was yeah. disgusting. This was the Blanche inquiry in 2019. Kathleen was asked to give evidence about her diaries and she was badgered over and over again to admit that she killed the children. 70 times she was challenged and each time denied having done so. And the forensic psychologist Patrick Sheehan at the time described the inquiry as quite brutal. Uh, Tracy, 12 years ago, I interviewed the Australian law professor Emma Cunliffe about her book Murder, Medicine and Motherhood. 
in which she said Kathleen Folbig was charged because some medical experts believed the pattern of unexplained infant deaths in a family can only be explained by murder. And as I said at that Blanche inquiry, Kathleen was brutally treated. Emma Cunliffe commented in relation to the diaries, quote, the inquiry has not sought expert evidence to help it learn about maternal bereavement and its potential effects on a mother's self-expression. But at this inquiry, Sophie Callan SC followed a different path. She invited psychologists and psychiatrists to offer their expert interpretations of the diaries and Kathleen's state of mind when she wrote them. But Tracy, it's a demoralising thought, is it not, that a former chief judge of the district court, Blanche, in 2019, after all the detail of the inquiry argued, it remains that the only conclusion reasonably open is that somebody intentionally caused harm to the children and smothering was the obvious method. The evidence pointed to no person other than Miss Folbig. Tracy, eh? I was quite broken that night. If you, the, the call between Kath and I was heartbreaking. The way Speakman and Blanche did it was just despicable anyway. You know, we found out it was quite shocking. So I, I, I guess I sit back and I always think back and he said, what would I gain by having a mental health professional in the room? And I felt like screaming out of the courtroom, you know, you would gain everything, you know, because this is yeah. all about mental health yeah. complex grief and everything. So God. Sophie Callan and Nima have done an exemplary job. None of us can walk. None of us can walk in Kathleen Folbig's shoes, I can tell you. Uh, obviously, we're both saying don't build up hope, but we may witness a stunning reversal of fortune here. But then you say, Tracy, don't you, at what cost? I mean... I've argued for years, and you've argued, the New South Wales legal hierarchy has known that there were serious questions raised about Kathleen Folbig's conviction, but the New South Wales legal hierarchy refused to take them seriously. I mean, in 2015, for our viewers' benefit, there was a detailed re-examination of the case, and the eminent forensic pathologist Stephen Corder argued that, quote, there is no positive forensic pathology support for the contention that any or all of these children have been killed. And that was 2015. I mean, Tracy, it's just been yep. a nightmare, hasn't it? And then it takes years. It takes years to get an inquiry. And then we have the other one, you know, the second one. All I can say is I urge your, uh, anyone that's listening to your program to go back to the inquiry 2022 page. Go down on the first page to the submissions, read them all. There's over a thousand pages, but it's written very, very well. So everyone can process it. It is, oh, it's just stunning. And if, why she's still in prison right now and not given a pardon is beyond disgraceful. Absolutely. It's disgraceful. Well, the only, good news, so the, the only good news is this wonderful woman here, she won't like me saying it, but I couldn't care less. She's built a two-bedroom <laughs> apartment home for Kathleen on her farm so that Kathleen will have somewhere to go when she gets out of jail and Tracy has told her she'll look after her. You're unbelievable. I keep saying you are a gift from God, Tracy Chapman, a gift from God. Um, we don't know where we go from here, but we, we don't know where we go from here, but we just pray and hope and support, don't we? Justice for Kathleen Folby. That's, That's what it. we're asking for <laughs> because this has been anything but. Absolutely. And on the day it happens, we'll talk again. Lovely to talk to you. Thank you, Tracy, for your time. Absolutely. There you are. How it's, no it's not so even possible to believe all that, is it? It's, so we've gone into some detail, but 
I, I find I've been with this case from day one, argued it on radio, argued it on television, argued it everywhere here. And there was Speakman who had the petition, did nothing about it. Now he calls himself a liberal leader, a liberal leader. What do you stand for? Freedoms, do you, basic freedoms, what do you stand for? And how do you, how do you compensate this woman? Uh, there will be no compensation because the argument will be that the evidence that's been presented now wasn't available at the time of the conviction. <laughs> That'll be the argument. Uh, and people don't apologise and don't say they're sorry, but the cost to this is enormous, the mental, emotional cost. She's lost four babies, four babies, and she's lost her own life. We'll keep you posted on all that. That was Tracy Chapman, a wonderful, loyal, and dedicated friend of the falsely condemned Kathleen Folbig. Before we go tonight, much has been said about the passing of the very great Australian Barry Humphreys. To suffice to say, I did know him well. The reality is we're meant to be mourning. Barry's death has brought grief to many, and yet, as so often with Barry, we can't stop laughing. People are revisiting online the hundreds and hundreds of interviews, rarely of Barry, but often of Dame Edna or the diplomat Celez Patterson, and who could forget the bridesmaid Madge or the sleazy union boss Lance Boyle or Sandy Stone, the sometime dead RSL member who recalled details of a very unsavoury and unsatisfactory suburban life. Rarely was Barry interviewed. He'd always argued that the alter ego was infinitely funnier and more outspoken than the real man. But people are funny, aren't they? Is funny the right word? Malcolm Turnbull, head of the Australian Republican movement, and he accused Barry Humphreys in 1998 of, quote, caricaturing and denigrating his own country in a pretty gross and sickening way, unquote. But when Prime Minister Anthony Albanese called Barry on his death gifted and a gift, Malcolm retweeted the post. Never mind. Barry would want us to laugh rather than mourn. He once said, there's no more terrible fate for a comedian than to be taken seriously. <laughs> In his memoir, he said, never be afraid to laugh at yourself. After all, you could be missing out on the joke of the century. With a scarifying insight into Australian suburban life, Dame Edna said, and I quote, to live in Australia permanently is rather like going to a party and dancing all night with one's mother. Barry Humphreys once said, I was born in Melbourne with a precious gift. Dame Nature stooped over my cot and gave me this gift. It was the ability to laugh at the misfortune of others. To my New Zealand viewers, may I remind you that Dame Edna once said, New Zealand is a country of 30 million sheep, three million of whom think they're human. <laughs> Barry Humphreys it was who said, sex is the most beautiful thing that can take place between a happily married man and his secretary. He also said, my parents were very pleased that I was in the army the fact that I hated it somehow pleased them even more. Well, thankfully, it is the ultimate gift to the artist that the art lives on. By the way, Barry Humphreys was a wonderful artist himself, a poet, a painter, a lover of art in all of its forms. And that art lives on via the many social platforms that we enjoy today. His old fashioned view was that his first duty was to make people laugh, including laughing at himself. He once wrote his own obituary, <laughs> which was published here in Australia, laughing at himself. And he concluded it by saying, Sir Barry was knighted by King Charles III 
for his services to the British Gladiolus, that's the plural of gladioli, the British Gladiolus Society, and he is survived by innumerable wives, great-grandchildren, and creditors. I used to tell him when he'd say these things that he was mad and he'd agree. As Johannes Leake wrote of an email that Barry had sent on the occasion of the launching in 2017 of his late father's book, the wonderful cartoonist Bill Leake, the book entitled Trigger Warning, Deplorable Cartoons by Bill Leake. Barry Humphreys accepted the invitation to appear at the book launch and in reply sent an extract from Oscar Wilde's Beautiful and Impossible Things, in which Oscar Wilde writes, and I quote, on the whole, the artist gains something by being attacked. His individuality is intensified. He becomes more completely himself. Of course, the attack's very gross, very impertinent and very contemptible, but then no artist expects grace from the vulgar mind or style from the suburban intellect. Wrote Oscar Wilde and Barry quoted, vulgarity and stupidity are two very vivid facts in modern life. One regrets them naturally, but they're there. They are subjects for study like everything else, unquote. At the final farewell to Barry Humphreys last Friday, held in barrel at the estate of his longtime friend and artist, Tim Storrier, there were no speeches, but rather readings from a book that Barry Humphreys collected with his favorite poems. Among them were three verses from Barry's favorite poem, The Heart of a Friend by Henry Wadsworth Longfellow, in which Longfellow beautifully recounts, I shot an arrow into the air, it fell to earth, I knew not where, for so swiftly it flew, the sight could not follow in its flight. I breathed a song into the air, it fell to earth, I knew not where, for who has sight so keen and strong that it can follow the flight of song? Long, long afterward, in an oak, I found the arrow, still unbroken, and the song, from beginning to end, I found again in the heart of a friend. I think we're all grateful for the undiluted magic that Barry Humphreys brought and will continue to bring into our lives. He lives on via the medium of technology about which he had many funny things to say. But through that technology, the genius of Barry Humphreys will live with us forever. That's it from me tonight. I'll see you tomorrow night. Don't forget you can listen to tonight's program on your podcast app from 6 a.m. tomorrow morning. Just search Alan Jones. That's me. You are watching ADH. Thank you for that. And don't forget Mark Stein each night, Tuesday to Friday at 5 p.m. You'll love him. I'll see you tomorrow night. Good night.